Sailing around the world using today's modern navigational equipment, radar, satellite communication, cell phones and autopilot is one thing. Take yourself back to 1968 and ask yourself how confident you would be only utilising technology available then. Go and jump into a yacht between 32 and 36 feet and set out to win a round-the-world race. I'm Deborah Wallace from Sailing Women's Network with another episode of Women in Sailing podcast. I'm extremely excited to be talking with Kirsten Noshafer, catching up with her in South Africa and yes, using modern technology to talk about her non-stop solo retro sail in the 2022-23 edition of the Golden Globe Race. Starting the race in September 22, along with 15 entrants from around the world, she completed the race in 233 days, 20 hours, 43 minutes and 47 seconds. She sailed past the Great Capes of the world and over 30,000 nautical miles. She experienced two weeks in the doldrums and even rescued a fellow competitor after his boat sank and he was set adrift in a life raft. Finishing back in France on the 27th of April 2023, she is the first South African sailor and woman to take out an international round the world race. It's my pleasure to welcome Kirsten Hi Kirsten, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Deborah. How are you? Very well, thank you. What's it like to be back on land? Ah, it's uh, really lovely, I must say, um, to feel earth beneath my feet and eat all sorts of different fresh foods and see family and friends. It's quite a treat. Fantastic. So let's jump into it. So if you could share a little bit about the early years and your greatest influences. Okay, well, so I grew up inland in South Africa. So the first sailing I ever did was actually on dams and not on the ocean. Um, But I loved uh, being in the outdoors, camping, hiking, uh, going to the sea for holidays. Um, And I some of my greatest influences as a child were reading accounts of Shackleton's journey, of polar exploration, Amundsen, that kind of thing. And I think I had this great desire as a child to explore. And it seemed like um, exploring by, by boat and by sea would be the optimal thing to do. So I had a dream as a child already to sail the ocean someday. I mean, sailing the ocean and going around the world nonstop unassisted with no modern equipment is is very different to actually doing individual hops so what was the driving force behind this race in particular for you well i think one of the aspects that really appealed to me about the race is the fact that it's a retro race where you have to rely on old school um navigating um, because I learned how to use a sextant and I got the qualifications and everything. And I used to do sites 
with a sextant, but only for the fun. To have to really use old school navigation really appealed to me because I've always had a bit of a sense of longing uh, for living in less modern ages where there was more to still explore. Um, so I think the fact that it's an adventure race, that it's a solo race, that it's a retro race, and that it's a non-stop, those all seemed like challenges I was really yearning for. So uh, it didn't take me too much thinking about it to decide that it was something I really wanted to do. Wonderful. So how was the preparation? Uh, the preparation was long and sometimes hard but also very interesting. It was a whole new learning curve for me because I've never participated in a race like this before. So I had no idea about fundraising, about how to run a campaign like this. And then, uh, so there was that aspect. Um, social media was quite a new thing to me. I'd never been on Facebook or anything until I signed up for the race. Um, and then the even more interesting aspect for me was the actual refit of the boat. Yes, so the refit was very interesting because uh, we did it ourselves, just myself and one other person and then volunteers that came and helped. Uh, so I basically did as much of the work that I could myself and I learned a huge amount about boat building uh, in that time. And so I gained a whole lot of new skills. So it was sometimes very hard, but, you know, looking back, I'm so grateful for it, for everything I learned out of it. So your boat's called Mini Haha. What were some of the key things that you had to prepare on the boat? Um, well, she was quite, well, she's not a young boat. She was launched in 1988 and she needed some major structural things done to her. So, for example, she had a teak deck and we had to strip all the teak off because there were leaks through the deck and then we had to rebuild the upper layer of the deck. So that was a big job. Uh, then her bulwarks were uh, made of um, Douglas fir wood and the wood had had water ingress so it was rotting. So we had to rip the bulwarks off and rebuild those. So that was a huge job um, and, 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 you know, structurally very important jobs. And then one of the very big jobs was we replaced the entire rig because we came with a wooden mast. And uh, when we did that, we also changed the, um, the, the chain plates to external chain plates to make it much stronger. We basically wanted to make the rig so strong that it would potentially survive a, a rollover like a 360. Uh, so that was a very big job. And I, I think we managed to do that very successfully um, with a very skilled person called Eddie Arsenault who made up all the tangs himself. He made all the chain plates up himself. And then it was fitting things like uh, the hydro vane, self-steering gear. It was installing the SSB radio. Um, it was choosing a new set of sails um, and optimizing those sails for the race. Uh, so, yeah, there were 101 jobs. Those are just to name the bigger jobs. And, you know, redoing all the electrics, the plumbing, uh, putting all new through-hull fittings on the boat. Um, the list did go on for a long time. <laughs> What sailing did you do on Minnehaha before the race? Okay, well, one of the interesting things we did before was actually sail under jury rig. That was before we put the new mast up, and that was an interesting experience. You know, you learn in theory how to jury rig a boat if you get dismasted, but you don't really, <laughs> and hopefully you yeah. get the chance to really practice it. So that was good. Um, and then... Um, 
it took us so long to get finished with the boat that by the time I left Canada, it was winter, and I jumped straight into the boat and sailed all the way home to South Africa. So that was my first real sea trial with the boat, and it was a long one and a good one. Uh, that That's amazing. So you were actually over in Canada um, refitting the boat. Yes, because I bought the boat in Canada, in Newfoundland, and uh, I couldn't get to it because of COVID. By the time I could get to it, it was winter. So I landed up staying in Canada to refit it in Canada. And how long were you over there for? Um, I was on Prince Edward Island in Canada for an entire year because I got there just before the bay froze over in winter and I got out just before winter was really setting in again. So it was one whole year. Oh, wow. So with that short, uh, well, it wasn't a short passage, from Canada over to South Africa, how did the boat perform? Um, were there any challenges that you had to overcome while you were at sea? Yes, the biggest challenge was actually leaving. I, I had to leave quite urgently um, because of the advancing season. Um, and the, the winter wasn't getting any better. So I actually landed up leaving Canada in 40 to 50 knots under storm tri-sail. That was my first proper sail on that boat. Um, and just to leave in itself was challenging. The, the temperatures were really dropping below zero, and it was probably my most anxious moment on that boat. Um, but then she handled very well through the rough weather, uh, but one big problem then was that all the portholes were leaking, and we weren't aware of this. So I had the boat leaking all the way down to Cape Town, and it was then the next big project is to rip all those portholes out and reseal them. Um, but for the rest, she handled really, really well and um, sailing such a long distance uh, over 57 days gave me a really good chance to um, understand what I needed in a way of a new set of sails and to fix problems like leaking portholes and any other little um, smaller or bigger problems that I detected underway. Yes. So how did you handle the, the leaking? Did you have some bog where you put it around there or... Were you bailing yes. out? Or? <laughs> um, it wasn't actually leaking that badly that it was uh, a danger. It was just very uncomfortable because it was dripping down from the portholes everywhere. So what I did is I took the screws out that uh, were holding the frames into the wood and I just put a whole lot of caulking in and then I put the screws back in, which did make the leak a lot less. But I knew that it was very much only a temporary solution because I, I needed to get in under those frames before the water started sitting in there and rotting the wood. Mm. Um, but I, I could stem it, so that was okay. Oh, that's fantastic. And anything else you learned on that journey? Uh, the Canada-South Africa journey? Yes, yeah. Um, yes, I did. Uh, for example, it was the first time I was sailing uh, that boat with a code zero, and it, it gave me uh, uh, enough chance to try and hoist it and drop it without, you know, tearing the sail, but it gave me a good uh, bit of time to think about how I'd do it, and I knew that the, the way I was doing it wasn't optimal, so by the time I got to Cape Town, I knew that I had to find a more optimal solution for doing that. And also I was sailing the spinnaker, but I had a sock. And, of course, we weren't allowed using a sock uh, in the race. So it gave me time to think about these things. Um, but most of it was a beat. And what I learned out of it is that the boat actually did pretty well on a close reef um, and, and that it was, you know, going to be good under those sailing conditions. 
you mentioned a whole new suite of sales. So what did you take with you? Uh, well, we were allowed to have uh, 10 sales for a, a, a cutter or a sloop. So I obviously had my three working sales, which was the main sale. It was a stay sale, and I had a, a working Yankee set up. Um, but this is one of the things we did in Cape Town. Then when I spoke to North Sales in Cape Town, and I worked quite closely with Jeff Meek there, his suggestion was that we made a double Yankee, which basically had two identical wings. But you, with two poles, you'd be able to um, uh, pole out a wing to either side and run dead downwind or slightly off uh, dead downwind. Um, so, and that would count as one sail because it was stitched together in the middle. So that was my working Yankee. And then I had a stay sail. So those were my three working sails. And then in addition to that, I had a single Yankee in case for any reason I didn't want the twin sales, which turned out to be a very good decision. I didn't know at the time, but in the race, and I'll tell you later why, it was a good thing that I had that. Mm -hmm. And then I had an asymmetrical spinnaker, a symmetrical spinnaker, a code zero. I had a tri-sail and a storm sail. And then I actually also had a second um, code zero, which was my old code zero, but it was still in good condition. And that made up my um, set of 10 sails. Amazing. It, it was just interesting to hear about so many sails on board. What was the space like down below? Give us a description of what it was like below decks. Um, it was actually very comfortable for just one person. Um, I had all my sails that I wasn't using, like the spinnakers and the code zeros and the storm sails and all that I had up in the forepeak. I'd taken the mattresses and stuff out there, so it was a double V berth, and that was basically my sail area. Um, and I had extra things up front there as well, like an extra solar panel, and it was just storage area up front there. Um, I also stowed some food up front there. Um, but I tried not to put too much heavy stuff up there because I didn't want the bow to be heavy. And then uh, I had um, I had a, a shower and a, a, a head, obviously. I didn't use the shower, um, but, you know, at least there was a head. Um, so that was directly behind the V-berth. And then walking further aft uh, through the bulkhead there uh, was the main salon area with the, uh, a berth on either side that would either be a, a bank or you could sit on it as a bench. So I would sleep on whichever one was more comfortable and I would always sleep on the um, lee side because it was more comfortable. So if I tacked the boat over, I'd change over and sleep on the other side. Mm. Um, I didn't have I didn't have a, a big table, a big saloon table, so that was nice because I could work in that space. For example, if I had to tie little bits of wool around the spinnaker so I could hoist it, I had all that open space between the companion way right up until the V-berth. And then uh, moving further aft still, I had on uh, port side, I had the, a nav uh, station. Um, and then on the other side, I had the galley. And then was the companionway that you could go out. But there was also a quarter booth, which served for storage space as well, um, where I had uh, my emergency grab bags and my survival suits and everything because it was right at the companionway. So in an emergency, I could grab it and exit the boat. And you mentioned food. What was your daily diet like? What you, did you plan for over the trip? Yeah, um, I ate quite well. Um, my typical daily diet was I'd start the day off uh, with a good cup of coffee and some cereals. So I'd use powdered milk and just like, uh, you know, cereals that had nuts in them and 
raw oats and um, dried fruit like raisins and stuff like that. So that was already, in my opinion, quite a healthy mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sunflower seeds and that kind of stuff. And then um, I'd usually try and eat lunch quite late. Um, and I'd turn it into a lunch combined with dinner. So I'd make a pot of stew or something like that, and then I'd eat it for lunch and dinner, or I'd eat it for dinner and lunch the next day. And uh, typically I'd make some rice with it, or I'd eat um, some dried, like dehydrated potatoes, just rehydrate them, or I'd make some pasta or something like that with it. Um, And I was quite lucky because a Frenchman, a French chef, uh, close to La Sable de Lon, where the raid started, asked me if he could make me a few jars of food uh, for the trip. And I thought, oh, that's lovely. Yes, that would be great. And I thought he was going to give me 10 jars, but he actually gave me 100 jars. And it was all organic food, homemade, and it had all sorts of nice things in it, from curries to chicken to shrimps and salmon and all sorts. So I had hundreds of these top quality jars of food and all I had to do was open the jar and put it in a pot and heat it up and then make a bit of rice to eat with it. So that was typically what I was eating. And then as snacks, I'd eat cashew nuts and dried fruit and chocolates and not too much. I'd like dark chocolates and every now and then I'd allow myself a sweet treat like a biscuit with tea or something like that in the afternoon. Sounds like you you ate um, really quite well over that eight months. What were some of the great things that you experienced while you were out at sea? Um, I had a few really great moments. Uh, one, some of them, and it, it kept on happening each time. It would still really make me happy. Was each time I found land or I found an island, and I found it to be there where I had calculated it to be, uh, because. You know, all the other sailing I've done throughout my life has always been uh, navigating with the GPS. And this time it was really when you get to where you thought you were and it's proven to you by the fact that there's now land on the horizon and it's the land you expected to see. It's a lovely feeling because you know that your calculations and your celestial navigation was accurate. Um, Then other really nice moments were experiences with wildlife. So, for example, I had a lovely moment of Cape Town when I was drifting, there were whales, humpback whales, really close to the boat, so close I could have almost leaned over and touched them. And there were dolphins and there were seals. And I've never had three species that close just uh, swimming around the boat before. Um, so that was really beautiful. And then it was really special to sail past Cape Horn because that's kind of like reaching the summit of the mountain. Um, and firstly, finding Diego Ramirez Islands. Uh, by sextant and knowing that I was where I thought I was and knowing that from then on it was going back up into warmer waters and then it was basically the last leg um, back on the home run. So those were some of the highlights. Look, I've got to ask, rough weather, did you experience any rollovers or was there any challenging weather out there that you had to face? Um, No, I... I fortunately I experienced rough weather with my boat already before the race, so I was pretty confident that she'd handle well. Uh, the roughest weather I experienced was about 900 miles before Cape Horn, mm-hmm. um, where I uh, I was warned though by race control that there was a very big system coming through, which was good that I had the warning because it gave me two days to head north to try and get out of the path of the eye of the storm and get into the safe quadrant. And by the time the storm hit, I, I had actually gotten away from the bad area. 
so it was still pretty stormy. And what I did is I trailed warp behind the boat. I trailed about 140 meters of warp in a bite behind the boat. So the, the length of the bite was about um, 70 meters. And the boat handled really, really well. And I could tell that it was handling well. So I wasn't too worried. But of course, there's always the risk in a storm like that, that you get some sort of a rogue wave that hits you and does damage. But in my case, I had a few bad waves breaking over the back and they did break the bracket of the hydro generator, which I could later fix. Um, but that's the worst breakage I had. Um, so I was very lucky. I didn't have any knockdowns or anything like that. And I believe that's partially due to the fact that the boat is pretty stable, uh, that the storm tactics that I was deploying worked, but also that I was lucky and I didn't have bad waves at me. Well, that's amazing because there's a lot of people out there well, that experience that sort of weather. So tell me, you got a call from race control about the storm front. How do you detect a storm front coming? Um, well, the only ways we could detect storm fronts was uh, either um, storm warnings via SSB radio so, for example, uh, we were allowed to speak to shore stations uh, and we were allowed to listen to shore stations that were forecasting storm warnings. Um, and then there was a shore station, a registered maritime shore station uh, in New Zealand, uh, Peter Mott, who would speak to us on a daily basis. And he didn't give us any specialized weather routing, but he would read the government-issued storm warnings to us. Um, and then if we had weather facts, I had weather facts, that was permitted. So if I could pick up a fax signal, I would be able to see the storms approaching. But in very severe storms, the race control would actually warn us. And and they they would then send us a, a satellite message via um, YB3 satellite tracking to tell us that there was a storm underway. Do you put it down to the time of year that the race was actually held? and where you were at those particular times that there weren't more storms systems yes. around? Yes, definitely. Uh, for example, in 2018, uh, there were a lot more capsizings, and it was definitely, in my opinion, because of the time of year, because the people got to the Southern Ocean much earlier in the season, so it was still kind of wintry. But for us, we got to the Southern Ocean when it was really uh, – already the southern it was becoming the southern summer so um the storms were further south and statistically there was probably less chance of getting hit by a bad storm um and for me that was also really important not only because it was a race to keep the speed up but to keep the speed up to get around cape horn as quickly as possible because of course the longer it was going to take you to get around cape horn the more you were heading towards the southern ocean autumn again which would increase the chances of storms. So I definitely think we, we were in the Southern Ocean at a good time of year to avoid, uh, you know, getting into too many storms. Yes, I totally agree. So how many boats actually started the race? Um, Deborah, I stand to correction, but I think it was 16 that started. And how many finished? Uh, three finished in the Suheili category, that is the solo non-stop without assistance uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and then two, well, one's still out there sailing, but he's due to arrive in the next couple of days. But he and the other person, they stopped one, uh, which put them into the Chitsitsa category, which is 
solo non-stop around the world without assistance, but with one, so not non-stop, but with one stop. So in all, all in all, five would have finished and three would not have stopped. And did you have any idea of where the other yachts were? Um, at times we knew because the times we were in contact with the other yachts via SSB and if we were willing to share our positions with one another, then we would know where the other was. Um, and then if anything happened to, you know, any of the yachts like Tapio Lettinen's yacht sank and, uh, you know, some of the competitors fell out of the race or retired from the race because for whatever reasons they had breakage or they didn't feel like carrying on or whatever their the reasons were, then race control would inform us. But for the rest of the time, we didn't know. So we were allowed to make contact via radio with other ships. And if by chance those ships had internet connection on board and they could uh, look up where the other person was, they were permitted to tell us, but only with a range and a bearing. They were not allowed to give out positions. The reason behind that being that if the other competitors were listening in on that radio call and they were being spoken about, they could have picked up their own position. And the point was that they should be using celestial navigation. So there were times when we, were, when we did know and there were times when we didn't know. And most of the times we didn't know. Did you leave your SS? be on a lot of the time yeah i live i never left it on because it takes up quite a bit of um, battery and you know uh, making sure your batteries were charged up was quite an important factor so the only time i would put the ssb on is if we had a pre-arranged sked with the other competitors or with a shore station like for example peter mott uh, then we tune in on the given frequency at the given time we'd talk and then we'd switch the ssb off again so how did you see or did you see any container ships out there, any other ships out there during your time at sea? Yes, there were times, like uh, especially in the Atlantic and closer to Europe and the Brazilian coast and stuff, uh, even around Cape Horn, when you'd see container ships, uh, you know, just standard cargo ships or oil tankers. I even saw an oil rig that was on the move. Um, off the coastlines, you'd sometimes see fishing vessels. So I saw fishing boats off Cape Town and I saw container ships off Cape Town again. Uh, then in the Southern Ocean, um, there was a vast stretch where I saw nothing. So just off Cape mm. Town, you know, right up until basically Cape Horn, I almost saw absolutely nothing. You'd see maybe, you know, maybe I saw two container ships on that whole stretch. Um, so it really depended on where you were and how what the density of the traffic was. Usually closer to land, you'd, you'd see ships or fishing vessels and far offshore, there'd be nothing. So that leads me into what were your sleep patterns like? Were you able to use autopilot? No, no we were allowed using wind vanes because they have existed for a very long time, predating 1968 already. Uh, but not autopilot. So it was purely the mechanical wind vane that uh, steers the boat on a wind angle. So the, the problem there is that the wind uh, direction changes in the boat's direction, the boat's course changes as well. Uh, but if you were in an area like the trade winds where the wind is very consistent and you were far offshore where there was a very small likelihood of there being another ship, uh, you could actually sleep quite comfortably for you know six hours or so. And I did do that. Uh, but I didn't sleep very deeply. So if there was a change of motion because the boat had changed its direction, it was taking the swell at a different angle, that would wake me automatically. Or if there was a different noise that, I, that, that shouldn't be there, that would wake me. 
And then while we weren't allowed to have uh, AIS with a display that displayed other vessels' positions and names and stuff, we were allowed an alarm. So the alarm would ring, and then you'd know there's a vessel in vicinity, but you wouldn't know where. But at least it would wake you up so that you could be awake and if there was going to be any sort of collision be wake, woken up in time to check that you're not on a collision course. Amazing. I, I couldn't imagine navigating that. So what did you learn about yourself during the race? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess I learned that I actually can be very comfortable and very happy out at sea on my own. Um, because for the majority of the time, I was actually very happy. I was enjoying myself. I was enjoying the sailing. Um, I learned that at times when my thoughts were getting negative, for example, the toughest times for me were when there was no wind and I wasn't moving, especially if, you know, it was days and days of not having wind. That was mentally really stressful. But what I did learn is that I can actually actively control my thought pattern. So if my thoughts were starting to get negative, I could stop myself right there and say, stop it. Don't think that way. Go and do something positive. Go and have a swim. Go and read a book. Uh, but get your thoughts out of a negative rut. Um, so that's something I learned about myself that really works. Um, and I learned that eight months is a doable amount of time to be alone. I learned that it's actually lovely to be able to disconnect and switch off cell phones and laptops and not answer emails and phone calls. It's <laughs> <That's> something <laughs> I actually really enjoy. Um, and I, I guess a lot of the other things were just it reaffirmed um, that I love being outdoors. I love being in nature. I love the sea. I loved all the interaction with any sort of wildlife. Um, yeah. Uh, and I guess I, I learned to trust my own navigational skills uh, with the, you know, navigating with the sextant. And I learned to also, in many cases, trust my instincts. And you mentioned that you've, um, you know, done races before using modern technology. What what sort of races and what sort of distances had you covered previously? The bit of racing I'd done was along the South African coastline and all those races were for fun mainly. But I had done a lot of time at sea, but even before the um, race started, I'd already clocked up the best part of 230,000 nautical miles because I've basically been sailing for the last 17 years and it was a lot of delivery trips. So I, I used to um, go with crew and we'd deliver boats from Cape Town to all over the world, Hong Kong, China, Australia, New Zealand, the Americas, Europe, you name it. Um, so I, uh, I'd done lots of long-distance ocean crossings. And then the job I'd done just before I actually signed up for the race and started concentrating on the race full-time was uh, I used to work on a high-latitude expedition sailboat, and we'd sail down to Antarctica and South Georgia and Falkland Islands and Patagonia with mainly film crews or uh, mountaineers or scientists. Um, and all of this contributed a lot towards... Uh, you know, feeling happy and content out of sea on the race because, um, you know, it did teach me to be responsible for the boat, not to break the boat, uh, to to provision the boat properly with enough food, fuel and water, to have the right type of tools and spares on board, all that kind of thing. Amazing. And you mentioned books, so you did a bit of reading. So what's what were the books that you read? Um, I read all sorts of books from technical sailing books to 
failing novels like uh, Bernard Moitessier and Robin Knox Johnston, you know, which are some of my favorite sailing books. Um, but then I read uh, the type of book I really like is uh, a novel, but that's placed within an, an historical setting because then you're reading a novel. So it's not like a tedious history book, but you're learning about the, the history of the times that you're reading. So I had quite a few of those historical um, novels uh, from South African history. Um, and then I had a whole random selection of books because people had collected books for me because they knew I, I was going to need a lot of books out there. So I had all sorts of books that I never knew about, but that turned out to be quite interesting. For example, I read a book called The Bookseller of Kabul that gave you a description of life in Kabul uh, while the Taliban was there. That was before the latest Taliban moved in, but previously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had some war books. I had all sorts of random books that um, landed up on the boat, and I must say I, I learned a lot <laughs> just oh, by reading fantastic. this eclectic selection. And you mentioned there were parts of the race that you had no wind. So what was sort of the longest period for you without wind? The longest period was uh, coming back up the Atlantic um, and getting stuck in the doldrums just south of the equator. Uh, I sat there for almost two weeks with either very little wind or with no wind at all. And two weeks, it feels like an eternity when you're stuck there. Everybody talks about the doldrums. I can't imagine what it would be like to sit there for two or three days, let alone a week or two. So it it can get quite challenging for you. Yeah, it definitely can. And especially because it's hot and it's humid and the boat's got no rhythm. If it's not moving, it's just rolling and pitching randomly in all directions and it's just... It's not fun. <laughs> what would you tell others that are thinking about doing this race? Well, I'd say, for one, you need to really want to do it. And um, it, it's, it's a very good thing, in my opinion, to go and do a long crossing, like at least a two-month crossing on your own beforehand to make sure that you do enjoy the loneliness because I think you must – be happy in your own company to want to go and spend a potential eight months on your own. Um, And then I would say uh, be very much involved in the refit so that you feel confident that you know every nut and bolt on that boat and that you'll have the right spares and the right tools so that if you go out there, you could probably sort yourself out for a lot of things that might break out there. Um, And then the other thing I'd say, don't let yourself get dissuaded from the difficulties that you're going to encounter getting to the start line, because I think getting to the start line is the most difficult part uh, financially and in terms of all the deadlines you have to meet. um, And when the going gets really tough, just remind yourself to push on through because you'll get through that and you'll get to the next point and, and, and you'll feel different every time you've managed to get to the next milestone. Kirsten, you're awarded the Rob Stevenson Seamanship Trophy for playing a pivotal role in a successful rescue of a fellow um, Golden Globe race competitor in 2022. Can you share a bit about that one? Yeah, sure. Well, I was, um, you know, informed by race control that Tokyo Lieutenant's boat had sank and that I was the closest to offer assistance. And in that moment, I didn't care at all about the race anymore, knowing that there was a fellow competitor 
And it wouldn't have mattered whether it was a fellow competitor or someone off a cargo ship or a fishing boat or doesn't matter, knowing that there was another human out at sea in distress sitting on a life raft in the middle of the Indian Ocean made me want to go and help. And that was my only goal. I didn't care about the race anymore. I just wanted to get to him as quickly as possible, which is basically what I did. Um, I was lucky in that the weather was good. I was able to get to him really quickly because the wind conditions were favorable. And he had been waiting for me all night. So the first time I just passed him, he already threw the rope over to me. So we could pull the life raft alongside my boat and get him onto my boat. Um, and then I was happy because I knew he was safe on my boat. Uh, the trickier thing was actually getting him transferred from my boat onto the cargo ship. Uh, because I had to get really close to the cargo ship. Uh, and uh, getting close to a massive ship like that on, 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 on the ocean, on the rolling seas, is uh, quite an adrenaline-filled kind of thing to do. Mm. But it all went very smoothly, and the people, the captain of the ship and the crew on the ship were extremely professional. Um, so between Tapio, myself, and the crew, uh, it turned out to be a really good uh, uh, teamwork and a very successful rescue, I guess. And have you seen him since? I have, actually. Um, uh, I went to, he invited me to come to Finland uh, after I'd arrived back in France. And I did take him up on that offer because it was just nice to see someone uh, that you saw in sort of semi-perilous conditions, shall I say, uh, back on dry land and safe. Um, and safe. And, and, I, yeah, and I guess you do develop some kind of a bond with a person uh, when you've, um, you know, been under those conditions within that sea. So that was uh, pretty special on that side, to see him again. Definitely. Again, congratulations. Yes. Now, you're getting closer to the finish line. What mm -hmm. were you thinking at that point in time? Um, yes, I was actually um, rushing towards the end as fast as I could um, because I knew I'd been stuck in the doldrums for a long time and it just seemed like it's now or never. If I want to win the race, I'm going to have to give it everything I've got. So I was pushing the boat as I can and I must say I was having a lot of fun uh, because I was getting nice conditions for sailing and the boat was really moving. So mm -hmm. it was fun sailing, it was challenging sailing. I was um, challenging myself and be faster um, and I was thinking about it quite a lot can I win, will I win uh, can't I win as Avalash maybe ahead of me to uh, so there were a lot of thoughts going through my mind and I just wanted to uh, remind myself that there's a good chance that I won't win because I didn't want to get there and then realise that Avalash should beat me and, and then have to deal with the disappointment yeah. now First came in you, you saw land how did you know that you'd actually won or was there still – because I know you guys were very close to each other. Yes, the only way I knew is I actually got becalmed uh, just seven miles from the finish line. So I was drifting around out there, moving along very slowly, and the first boat came out to greet me and, and turn me in. And, and it's by, from those boats that I knew then that I'd won because they said, you're the winner. And I said, am yeah. I really? <laughs> so that's where, the, where I knew definitively that it was true. <laughs> oh, look, that, it was fantastic. I tell you what, I was watching and sharing information on your race around the world um, to my little group down here in mm -hmm. Australia. And there are a lot of people watching you from here as well. 
Oh, so, wow, that's nice to know. Yeah. <laughs> that's lovely. Social media has opened up quite a, a large world. You know, being able to follow races like the Golden Globe and Bondi Globe and the Clipper Race, it is amazing. But the Golden Globe is really all an extreme race. No modern technology. Do you have any thoughts on the race and its status in yes, the I, world I think of racing? You know, it's quite new on the circuit. This is only the second uh, replica edition that has taken place, but I think it's uh, it's generated an incredible amount of interest. And what I think is nice about it is that it doesn't only appeal to sailing fanatics, but it also appeals to um, people who don't know that much about sailing because even if they don't know about sailing, they can still enjoy following the race because it's far more about the adventure and, and, and the human story and everything behind it. So I think uh, the race has the potential to make it really big on the world racing circuit uh, just by virtue of the amount of interest that people have shown in it. You're back on land. You've been travelling far and wide. Tell me about your reception that you've been getting around the world. Um, well, I, I had an amazing reception in France, of course, upon arrival. Uh, really, really overwhelming reception there that I'll never forget. Um, I had a fantastic reception in Finland when I went to meet uh, Tapio. And I'm actually back in South Africa at the moment, but I can't blame the South Africans for not having given me a reception because I've come down here silently. Because <laughs> <laughs> I really, I needed to get a little bit uh, out of the limelight. It's quite overwhelming. I've had lots of media requests and I just really wanted to come home. And uh, after having been away for a whole year, I just wanted to come home and spend a bit of time with my folks and at home and going on hikes and stuff like that. So I've kind of shied away a little bit from um, the South African, being in the South African limelight. But uh, on the same token, I've had an amazing amount of messages uh, from South Africans. And even when I was in France, there was an, a, a lot of uh, interest from South African media, which really makes me happy because, of course, it's, it's, it's nice for me to know that my own uh, country people have been following and that they've been cheering me on. Um, so it's been all around really, really amazing. It certainly looks like it. One of the other questions I have for you, are you aware of any other women that have uh, undertaken this race? Uh, the only other woman that has tried to do the Golden Globe race is Susie Goodall. Uh, she competed in 2018 um, and she was doing a fantastic job, but then unfortunately she got into a really bad storm and then her boat was capsized and she lost her rig. So that was the end of the race for her. Um, but other than who, no one has attempted to do this particular Golden Globe race circuit. And will you be doing another one? And uh, Deborah, I don't think I'd necessarily partake of the Golden Globe race again. Um, it's a huge uh, undertaking. You know, it took me almost four years um, to prepare and complete the race. It's a huge financial undertaking, um, all that kind of thing. So um, I don't know if I do it again. I've done it now, and I'd probably seek out a different challenge if I, you know, if I were going to do something. What's in store for you, Kirsten? Uh, Deborah, I haven't really decided. I've, uh, I'm still so fresh off the boat, um, and mm. for the last since 2019, all my focus and energy has just gone into this race. 
uh, without my ever really having given much thought to what I would do after. Uh, what I have to do now is um, sell my boat, tie up a few loose ends around the race, and then I guess reinvent myself. But I'll probably take a breather and a bit of time out and you know, uh, just do some fun things like hiking and surfing and spend some time back home. Well, look, what a homecoming, Kirsten. And are there any last words of advice you'd give anyone? Yes, I think if I had to give anyone advice uh, who was contemplating such a long trip of any nature, whether it's a walking or a cycling or a sailing trip, uh, you know, when they're really trying to achieve their goal and do something like that, is um, when it's such a long trip, don't envisage the destination and you set yourself little milestones, then it actually becomes very doable. Look, thank you so much. And all the very best. I mean that sincerely. And you've been very inspirational. And I know the ladies from here in Australia have followed your journey and find it absolutely amazing. Oh, wow. Well, that's an inspiration to me that uh, people have been following and cheering me on from the distance. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Kirsten. All the best. Bye. All the best to you. Bye.